Hi, I'm Rowan, and we're really excited to bring you our first episode of our new podcast, All About Mental Health. In each episode, you'll hear directly from mental health experts, so psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, doctors, and other therapists, and you'll get a real insight into different conditions and treatments. The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with these professionals, and it's not designed to be used as individual therapy, so please take it as general information only and visit the show notes for personalized support if you need it. These podcasts are brought to you by TalkLink. TalkLink is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. Today's episode is a three-part segment with a clinical psychologist, Rhiannon Thomas. Rhiannon works in the public sector in Melbourne, responding to acute mental health cases. The first one is on adolescent suicide. The second will be on psychosis, and the third will be on borderline and bipolar. By the way, if you want to ask Rhiannon a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. We know that our brain doesn't fully develop until the age of 25 and the intensity, for example, of say a breakup with somebody is going to be more emotionally intense for an adolescent than say an older adult. So Rhiannon, why don't, why don't you start and introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I, and I work um, in the, pe- the public mental health sector with a large public hospital. So my role is, is really working with sort of really high risk children and adolescents, often facing sort of a multitude of, of different mental health um, difficulties. Yeah. So I, I work, I guess, at the, the tier three pointy end of, of mental health and have been working in that space for almost five years now. And I guess part of our team in particular, we, we kind of work with young people who, I guess, struggle to engage with clinic-based models of practice. So we do um, an intensive outreach model for these young people. So definitely on the on the more severe acute end of um, mental health so clinic based practice would involve what exactly so i guess essentially people coming to a private clinic or consulting rooms really where they actually meet with the psychologist or the mental health clinician sort of and they actually make their way to the appointment mm-hmm. whereas in my particular team and we get referrals for those young people who perhaps wouldn't engage in that type of model. So they actually struggle to even leave their bedrooms. They might struggle to even leave the house or they may have had some negative experiences in the past with services where that particular model doesn't suit them. So there's a few things I want to unpack in all that. So firstly, you said that you're a clinical psychologist. Can you explain to our listeners what's the difference between a psychologist and a clinical psychologist? Yes, in terms of the training is probably the thing that separates us. So I think clinical psychologists have um, an extra two years on top of their previous expected study. Mm -hmm. So, for example, they would require to do what's called a clinical endorsement pathway where they have to work with sort of severe and complex mental illness. It's more of a specialisation in the assessment, formulation and treatment of mental illness. So, for example, to 
compare and contrast those who are just registered psychologists would do the six-year pathway. So they would do an undergraduate degree, a fourth-year degree, whether it was a graduate diploma or an honours degree, and they'd still have to do a master's. But to become a clinical psychologist, there needs to be a two-year internship program on top of the six years to get that specialisation in you know, assessment, formulation and, and treatment of severe mental illness. That's such a long pathway, isn't it? And I'm sure a lot of people don't realize how long it takes to become a clinical psychologist. It's a really rigorous path. Yeah, it, yeah. And I suppose so what, what is a bit of the relief at the end of the tunnel is that the last two years does have to be a, within a placement-based so it's, it's all very experiential and I guess that's where you get that experience and you have to get that supervision from another clinical psychologist to get yeah. um, endorsement. But I guess I wouldn't say that by any means is it really clearly different between, say, registered psychologists and clinical psychologists. It's just that the pathway and the recognition is a little bit more well-regarded and that is because of that distinction of the of the two-year endorsement into clinical psych as opposed to just those registered psychologists. Sounds like you really like a job. Yeah, I do. I do. It's, it's um, difficult and it's complex and, you know, like any job, you know, it definitely has its difficulties and, and struggles day to day. But on the whole, yeah, I really, I really love it. And I, and I don't think, I think it's one of those areas where unless you're sort of passionate about it, I think it's probably hard to stay in there for the long haul. Sure. Now, you mentioned that you deal with tier three people. How are those passed on to yourself and to your team? What channels do they go through and how does it end up in your, I guess, day-to-day work? Yep. Because I work in the public mental health space, and because the the young people that we get are a little bit more in the sort of high risk end, they the way that we would receive their referral is through other teams or or services within the greater service. So, for example, we wouldn't just pick up a a referral from, a, say, a GP as would most private psychologists or private counsellors would. We would pick it up through a referral that would have to come through the psychiatric triage service and there would be a team within the public health setting that I work in that would I guess do a bit of an assessment and work out where the family or the young person would need to sit and and then from there sometimes they might sit with say more of a CAMS team a child and adolescent mental health team for a while and it might through various different reasons they might not have engaged they might present with too high risk they might sort of have needs that are are above the capacity of that particular team in which case Mm -hmm. they would then be referred to to us and And what what exactly exactly is a psychiatric psychiatric triage service service? is Is that that sort of like like a cat cat team and And for our listeners who aren't familiar with cat could could you maybe explain that that and what the overall process is Yep. So there's two types of the CAT teams. There's what's called the ECAT team. So they're the so CAT basically stands for the crisis assessment team. So there's an emergency CAT team. So for any anyone who comes to emergency and there might be a concern that they also might have some mental health difficulties. So a perfect example will be one of my ex patients came to emergency saying that she really wanted an X ray. 
They're like, okay, why do you have an why do you want an X-ray? I want an X-ray because I'm feeling all of this pain in my stomach. And they're like, oh, okay, what's causing the pain? Okay, well, inserted a chip into my stomach and trying to communicate with me through the chip in my stomach, and I want it to be removed. Then the triage nurse will be like, ECAT, I've got a referral for you. Can you please assess the mental health of this patient in emergency? So they probably wouldn't do an X-ray, but they'd probably get the mental health team to come out and say, hey, can we have a bit of a chat with you? In which case, after that chat, they might say, look, we believe that you're experiencing some psychotic symptoms. The, the person would probably likely at that time be like, no, I'm not. I'm actually really just want to get this chip out of my stomach ASAP. Can you please help me? And they said, look, we might not be able to get the chip out, but we might help you with something that could reduce the distress that you're experiencing. Then they would potentially be admitted to, say, the inpatient unit, depending on if they needed it, or they would be discharged home and they might just have some follow-up in the community with CAT. And that's the crisis assessment team. So Kat would then come out to their house a few times, maybe give them some medication, maybe calm them down a bit and see if they need any of, you know, see if they're kind of at risk to themselves or other people. If, for example, they were, you know, using ways to get out the chip in their stomach or drinking bleach or doing things that were placing themselves at risk, they might then actually say, look, we, we can't manage you in the community. We, we need you to go into sort of an inpatient environment Depending on if it's the inpatient or in the community with CAT, they might say, look, this person needs some intensive mental health support. We think that they've got this underlying psychotic disorder that's manifesting. Hey, psychosis team, can you please take on this young person? In which case the, the team that I used to work in would, would come involved and, quite, and, and sort of see this person and with the psychiatrist as well quite regularly and routinely to see if we can slowly reduce the distress around the chip and also hopefully to get them to a point where they're no longer experiencing this chip that's been inserted inside them. So it really sounds like you're dealing with the, the extreme of that experience. Yeah, to some, yeah, to some degree. Look, sometimes it can be really tricky to kind of work out and ascertain what meets the criteria for our particular team. Um, and that, that is because mental health is, you know, on such a spectrum. So, for example, even though the complexity of the case might not necessarily meet our criteria, the fact that they're not able to get out of their bedroom and see somebody means that they present with that extra element of risk, in which case we would be referred. But sure. it is a very unclear case. And, and often what is presented on paper is very different to what's then presented when we actually go out and see the people and the families that we work with so what do you see when you go out what does your typical day look like what are the sorts of um, people that you meet what are they dealing with it's probably no one clear-cut answer I don't think there's ever a day where it's a typical day however I would say particularly in the child and adolescent sort of mental health sector we would see more so around parent-child relational issues where they might I guess the identified patient, which would be the child or the adolescent, would be presenting with a lot of different um, mental health difficulties. So a classic referral would be, and this is probably stretching it because we don't really have a necessarily classic referral, but, you know, say a 14-year-old who's presenting with um, long-term school refusal, peaks of aggression, 
they might have social anxiety, they might be engaging in self-harm, they might have suicidal thoughts, they might be engaging in suicidal gestures and they might have a long history of trauma as well. That would kind of be a typical-ish kind of case. Wow. Or we would have more of the borderline personality disorders and the Mm -hmm. personality kind of features that we would see. But our age group generally is around eight years old to 18 years old. So given the fact, you know, it's such a huge range of, of stages of development, we really see a, a lots of different things. So we might see severe eating disorders where um, they, haven't, they haven't engaged in sort of evidence-based treatment modalities, whether it's um, family-based treatment or, and they're still really high risk of obviously starving to death. So I guess because we're more intensive, the idea is is that we'll go out there and kind of try really, really hard to kind of work out what hasn't been done or what hasn't been effective or just Mm. try and, you know, build a relationship with them to then potentially get them into the treatment that they require. Or they might remain with us and we might be their only therapeutic intervention they might only ever have. Right. So in that cohort of 8 to 18, that was the age group you were talking about? Can you talk to us a little bit about suicidality? We hear a lot on, on media about suicide is a big deal affecting young people. What do you see in your day-to-day experience on that? And what's your experience been with adolescent suicidality? Yeah, and so I guess just to kind of um, probably define and unpack suicidality a little bit more, basically it's a bit of an umbrella term that speaks to behaviours and thoughts around suicide. And in that, it can look very different to very different presentations. Whilst a lot of the young people who present to our service in particular, at one point in their life, have expressed suicidal ideation or thoughts to kill themselves, what we tend to see in, or what I've tend to see in the, in the, in the experience of um, the team that I've worked in, is a lot of the time it's a way that they've really been able to communicate how distressed they, they are. For example, perhaps other ways haven't worked for, for them to communicate that they've been really struggling with their mood or struggling with their anxiety, um, in which case they've expressed the, the wish to die as a way to, I guess, seek connection or seek people to take them seriously. Mm. I guess speaking about suicide attempts, in my experience, generally the ones who might, I guess, engage or I guess engage in suicidal gestures a lot more frequently, in which case there would be sort of, there'd be more on that moderate to high risk sort of area of assessment. They've normally, for me anyway, been around um, those presenting with personality disorders, but certainly on a whole, suicidality is, is very much a symptom of lots and lots of different presentations. And even in the normal population Without, I, I guess when I say normal population, I mean people who don't meet criteria for a mental health diagnosis can also have thoughts of, of suicide. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, have the, the drive and desire to sort of end their life because of those other external stress factors, you know, whether it's loss of a job, loss of income, um, whether they, you know, they've had a really traumatic incident and they struggle to cope with it. And our role very much would be in the the team that I work in is to really kind of do a really comprehensive risk assessment 
where we'd kind of look at the dynamic and static risk factors for a young person. But it is a really, really tricky space mm-hmm. because there's some people who, because of their mental health presentation, will express suicidal thoughts day to day, express plans to you know, engage in a suicide plan, but might not ever actually have a suicide attempt or there's other people who have had suicide attempts but haven't had the intent to die and then there's other people who can present as if they actually are going okay and then they've engaged in a really high lethal suicide attempt and it's been successful for them and they have actually completed suicide so yeah it's I think it's a a really difficult social problem that I think despite all the mental health services that are out there, we really don't know enough. And we, I guess um, it's really difficult to intervene because of, because of the nature of it. So how would you intervene in your role? What, what are the sorts of things that you've done in the past or some of the things you've seen? What are the, some, some of the things that you found to be effective and maybe some of the things you, you've learned to adjust and approach in a different way? It varies again because of depending on the presentation of the young person that we'd received. But probably for a sort of presentation of sort of, you know, lots of previous trauma and perhaps they're really depressed, the interventions that we would first and foremost engage in is a really thorough risk assessment. So kind of looking at what are their what 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 makes them really vulnerable to want to end their life. And that is looking at the factors in their life, sort of those what I was saying before, like those static risk factors. So what won't change that we can't actually improve in their environment or, you know, where they're living, with their family, you know, what what can't we change? But then looking at the dynamic risk factors, which are what are the things that could change over time? And one of the things we know particularly about adolescents and their stage of development is just risk-taking behaviours, for example, and impulsivity. So that might be a factor that at that point in time, because of their stage of development, we'd kind of think, oh, you know, that's something we want to kind of monitor and keep track on. And then we'd engage after it's quite a thorough risk assessment, we'd start to do sort of safety planning with the young person and their family. And so that is from the basic end, we would, for example, depending on if they've got plans to say overdose or they've got thoughts to cut themselves or they've got thoughts to hang themselves in their immediate environment, we'd make sure we would remove access to all the means for them to you know, engage in a a suicide attempt and we try and build up their protective factors. So we'd we'd really Mm -hmm. try and say, well, if this young person, one of the dynamic risk factors might be that they're really socially isolated, we'd then really start to try and look look at their social environment and who they could potentially reach out to, to to kind of build up their protective factors. From a therapeutic perspective, I think probably one of the most important things that needs to happen is actually just listening to them and listening to their experience and actually just empathising and validating that, you know, how how frightening it would be for them to, to be in such a dark place that the only thing they want to do is actually disappear from the world. And I I can't stress enough how important that is. Mm. And for actually for them to be able to seek that not only from the clinicians that they may see but actually from their family members and so that would be our role is really to get them to turn to the people we want them to turn to and say hey 
I'm feeling like this and this is these feelings are making me want to end my life and I'm sure for all of us when we're in in moments of feeling really you know a lot of emotional pain you know we don't want people to go into a solution focused kind of mode and say oh well let's why don't you do this and why don't you do this and why don't you do this which is what as humans we want to do because we want to help you know innately we want to help Mm. people and we want to take away their emotional pain but I believe anyway that actually connecting with their experiences is what they really want and sometimes that in itself can just make them feel heard enough or validated enough to then move to a space where they then can start thinking about ways in which they can potentially manage these suicidal thoughts or develop a plan that they can follow to keep themselves safe when the thoughts increase in intensity. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work involves getting these young people to understand that it fluctuates, you know, and, and distress isn't always there. And, you know, thinking about those metaphors, whether it's a, a wave or a storm that, you know, it does pass and it's about pushing through those really difficult times to know you're going to get to the other side. So a lot of it is that kind of distress tolerance work as well. It's a, a, a bit of an um, individual approach really depending on what we are presented with. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting journey you've taken us on because I've, I've heard, and I'm not, I can't remember your exact words, but you're basically saying you assess the risk first, you identify real exposures, and then you try and create a safety plan around each one of those exposures, and then you overlay that with some really good quality empathy-based therapy. Is, have I basically understood that correctly? Yeah. And I'm, I'm just reflecting sort of on suicide as a whole. I remember maybe about eight years ago, um, I got myself into a a situation where I was in over my head. I'd committed into something and there was a lot um, at stake and um, it wasn't just, so it it was a business deal. It wasn't just my money, it was other people's money as well. And I remember being at Flinders Street Station and crossing the road and having this really clear thought on, and wanting to end my life and step in front of traffic. And at that moment, it was just such a strong urge. And looking back at it now, it seems so alien. It seems like it was a foreign thought, like why would you even think that? But in that moment, I just felt so overwhelmed that it seemed like a perfectly acceptable way to just get out of that particular situation I was in. And thankfully, I haven't had many of those in my life, but it's it's sort of a very powerful perspective from which you can you can empathize with other people going through these sorts of scenarios on how those waves that you're talking about and the storms they come over you and at different points in your life they can really make you do things that for the bulk majority of your life you would not do i know in preparing for this conversation i looked at some stats and the australian bureau of statistics had some really powerful numbers and the one number that really sat with me was there are about three thousand people that kill themselves in australia every year 3,000 people, Um, but there's 65,000 attempts. Do do those numbers resonate with what you see? And can you maybe shed some more insight into that sort of dynamic between there's lots of attempts versus successful suicides? And does that give you as a therapist the ability to step in and and intervene more? Or how does that all play out? Yeah, look, and I I think just to stress again, that sometimes you can kind of get these stats and think, oh, gosh, that's, it's just so terrible. Um, how do we intervene you know it can seem like such a sort of helpless 
area that it can feel like how do yeah how do we make a difference because those stats are not okay and what we do know and especially in, in our training as mental health practitioners is that often the data doesn't actually reflect the accuracy mm. as well of what of, of the actual rates and so we do know is it's such a difficult topic I guess to talk about that sometimes we don't know whether deaths that are reported as potential accidents are actually suicide attempts. I think to speak to the I guess the difference in the data around those who have completed the suicide versus those who have attempted I think that that can be really difficult to kind of work out what's going on there. I think the reason is is because there are a lot of people who definitely have experienced suicidal thoughts and thoughts that they want to die and thoughts that you know perhaps they don't offer anything in the world or they might feel like they're kind of burdening those around them however the suicide attempt in itself might not necessarily equate to actual intention to want to die Mm -hmm. and so what we have seen and, and especially for adolescents as well is that it feels like this is the only way that they can have a cry for help and they might for example engage in an overdose where there is more of a chance, for example, to resuscitate them and revive them and bring them into hospital. But the dose itself wasn't necessarily lethal in nature. Sometimes as well, and this is relevant across all stages of development, but I think it's particularly relevant for adolescents because we know we know that our brain doesn't fully develop until the age of 25. And our emotional centers of the brain in adolescence is so active that the intensity, for example, of say a breakup with somebody is going to be more emotionally intense for an adolescent than say an older adult. And because of the intensity of the emotions and puberty and all of the other factors that adolescents face puts them at that higher risk of actually using say self-harm or um, Mm. sort of suicide attempts as actually a way to just stop the emotional distress. And not necessarily about them actually wanting to end their life. So it's almost like I cannot deal with all of these raging emotions that are going on for me right now. So I'm just going to do this to just stop, stop how I'm feeling without being able to hold in mind those sort of implications for, say, their families. And all of that, I guess, sort of goes out the window because in that moment they just experience such heightened distress. Mm. But look, I think also certainly there are obviously other suicide attempts that are mitigated, that are intervened early, that are that that otherwise might have actually been completed suicides. So, but it absolutely is a really difficult area to to properly understand, even as a clinical psychologist. You talked about self harm a few times. Can you expand a little bit more on that? What is it? How do you see it presented? What does it mean? And how do you manage it? Sorry, there's a lot in there, but on, on the topic of self-harm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess broadly speaking, um, self-harm is any kind of act of internal, I guess, um, violence and harm towards oneself. And often 
the most common, I guess, form that we probably see in mental health is cutting and self-mutilation, whether it's burning yourself, whether it's cutting yourself. Sometimes it might be repeating horrible statements of yourself. It might be banging your head. It might be engaging in, in behaviours that you'd otherwise, you know, not wish to do. So say it's, for example, binge eating or, you know, substance abuse that actually you, you kind of have the intention to harm your body. I think whilst it's often linked with suicidality and suicidal gestures, a lot of the time it is a way of regulating difficult emotions or, or it's a way of alleviating a lot of emotional pain. So definitely what I see in the, in the team that I work in is a lot of young people cutting or self-harming as either a way of expressing their distress in the way they know how. So rather than saying, you know, hey, I'm really struggling with my emotions. Can I have some help? It's kind of like, hey, here, have a look. I'm really, really struggling. Um, can you please help me? Or it actually might be that they feel so numb and disconnected from their feelings that they might engage in these gestures to kind of feel something. And, and kind of feel something that they kind of have control over. So, for example, you know, if, say, somebody is experiencing really, really heightened distress, you know, because emotions can feel so overwhelming at times, when we, when we cut ourselves and when we physically cause ourselves pain, we're kind of in control of how long it's going to last and we're in control of actually producing the pain. And sometimes that in itself can, can alleviate the emotional pain because we're, we're causing physical pain against ourselves. Is it a marker for you to pursue a particular line of inquiry or is it so broad that it can't be pinned down to a particular event or trauma? Look, it's definitely um, a marker in which to, to monitor. From a psychological perspective, however, it would be around thinking about this is how limited the resources are for this young person in order to cope and so it would be about trying to engage them in other coping mechanisms that don't cause scarring and self-mutilation and further self-esteem issues later in life but again the meaning behind it just like suicide as well is going to be so different for so many different people and just like suicide for example some people just might live with this idea of you know, in the back of their mind that if this all, if my life doesn't fall in the, in the way that I want it to, then I can just end my life. And it might be that they never actually engage in any form of suicidal planning or anything like that, but they just live with these suicidal thoughts day in and day out versus another young person who might actually get it for the first time. And it's so intense that they just decide to engage in, in, in a plan and, and unfortunately do end their life. So I think that's where it's so important to have a really strong formulation and understanding around the particular person that comes. And whilst suicidal ideation and self-harm is experienced, we know across the board, regardless of whether they meet criteria for a um, mental health diagnosis, it is going to have such different meaning to different people. So there's not a real clear cut answer, but that's certainly the typical presentation that we would see that people use self-harm to to manage difficult emotions, to experience physical pain over emotional pain, but also to, to seek help in the only way that they've kind of learned how. I remember going through high school, seeing quite a lot of it, and just my anecdotal personal experience, I knew a couple of people um, that were involved in that sort of um, self-harm. And maybe it's the, I'm sure there's a term in psychology for this, the 
blue car syndrome. If you get a blue car, you see it everywhere and you become far more tuned to it. I feel like I've, I've probably reached a little bit of that with self-harm because I see it very often. You order a coffee and you'll see it on someone's arms or someone will be at the beach and, and you'll just notice a certain, you know, scarring pattern. And I feel like I'm seeing a lot of it and it's everywhere. Do the numbers say anything along those lines in your experience? Is there any kind of trend with self-harm? Is there any insight we can draw from that? I think it's probably, unfortunately, too common. It's really, um, and I think that's where what we see, even in um, the general population who might not ever ever have access to mental health service, that they've been engaging in self-harm for a very, very long time. I suppose thinking about children and adolescents, you know, often we see what's clustered as internalising presentations and externalising presentations. Um, And the reason I bring this up is because what is very difficult, especially for sort of mental health clinicians, is those who present with, say, more of the internalising presentations. So they're the ones that can go under the radar where they might have experienced low mood for a very long time. They may be very, very anxious, but they've learnt to really mask it and and hide it for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And that might be what we see where they've engaged in a lot of self-harming behaviours, but people might not, not may have never picked it up versus what we can also see for those more externalising presentations who maybe act out and they may become really aggressive and they may be quite open and in your face about the self-harm as well. I think there are two different trends that I think we do see, especially in a public mental health space, but I'm sure we also see it in the, in the general population for those who might never seek contact with any mental health clinician or psychologist but I imagine that again just like suicide I think the actual rates are probably a lot higher than what is reported. So what's the process if someone's listening or watching and they know someone that's engaged in self-harm or maybe even attempted suicide or they know of someone that's going through suicide ideations what what are the right steps to take for a concerned friend or family member? Yeah yeah well look I think building up enough trust for them to be able to be open and honest with you about it. I think falling into a bit of a black and white mentality around just thinking self-harm is bad, I don't think can be very helpful. So, And sometimes it's about trying not to take away something if there's nothing to replace it with. So sometimes self-harm is actually the one thing that that really helps them to, to regulate. And even though it can be really concerning, if it's the only kind of coping strategy that they're engaging with, we would actually prefer them to be engaging in self-harm than, say, attempting their life, you know, and, and which is a fine line and it's a really tricky space to navigate. But first and foremost, just listening, listening, trying to connect with their experience and, and I guess trying to push them to seek help for, for themselves, really, and, and be a voice for themselves. If it's to a point where you're kind of really worried that they've, you know, perhaps have a suicidal plan or um, they've opened to you about it and, and you're really worried that they're going to, to do something that will cause significant harm to themselves, my always rule of thumb would be just letting them know that you're going to seek support on behalf of them, that you're really worried about them and that that might be to either encourage them to seek help through a GP or a mental health care plan or or even if it feels like it's sort of really imminent to just call emergency services or, um, you know, Lifeline as well as possibly the psychiatric triage number. 
which gives them access to more tier three mental health support. I think whilst it's important to treat it really seriously, I would always stress that you can't take away the impact of of some empathy and connection and that sometimes just for somebody to even open up and say, hey, I've actually had thoughts to to kill myself, doesn't actually mean they're going to engage in any kind of attempt. It's just that they have these periods of feeling so hopeless that even the fact that they've opened up to somebody and they've got that connection can just be enough for them to feel enough, you know, heard enough and can be that... Mm -hmm trigger to get you know for them to recognize actually maybe I do need help with this but again it's going to look very different to different people so I think one of the things I'll do is I'm going to list some of those crisis centers in the show notes Uh, so there'll be some resources there for anyone listening who wants to reach out for themselves or for someone else the details will be there yeah yeah and I guess as well that sometimes It's also about just recognising that you're not going crazy. It's actually very, very normal to have thoughts of of ending your life. It's very normal to have moments of like, oh, why do I bother? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're crazy or that, you know, you need to have psychotherapy for 15 years. Sometimes it actually is just about acknowledging that that you're struggling Mm -hmm. and it's okay and you're allowed to struggle. We're all going to struggle you don't need to go to hospital and be an inpatient and have do- doctors in white lab coats give you lots of medication. It's just acknowledging that you're not alone. And if you reach out, you will feel better. It's a norm- it sounds like it's a normal part of the human experience to have those ebbs and flows of emotion. And some of them will, will be potentially quite strong and that it's okay to, to go through that and experience that. Yeah. And to, to know that it, it will pass just like, Sometimes when we're feeling incredibly stressed and it feels like there's no way we can get on top of all of our workload, we know it'll always pass. And so we don't want you to engage in something that will then ruin your life and upset and, and affect all the family members and friends around you when, it, when it's something that potentially could pass and you'll get through it. But it's, it's also about acknowledging that there are those dark places and to acknowledge them when they happen. So the figure that I came across was 135 people. Every suicide statistically affects 135 other people, loved ones, friends, and family. That was quite a sobering figure to just reflect on as well. You know, your actions, they have huge ramifications. And in that moment, you may not feel like you've got that network, but it's there and that it's going, you will be missed. And those, those friends and family around you will feel that. And, and it's, a much bigger pool than what you may appreciate. It's a much larger group of people. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the first part of the conversation with Rhiannon Thomas. Coming up next, we'll be talking about psychosis and Rhiannon takes us through some pretty amazing and insightful case studies. Also, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please jump on your podcasting service, subscribe, leave us a comment and like. Your interaction with our podcast is one of the only things we can do to try and promote this podcast and to extend its reach to other keen listeners. So thank you so much for doing that.